Comfort for Christians by A.W. Pink Introduction The work unto which the servant of Christ is called is many-sided. Not only is he to preach the gospel to the unsaved, to feed God's people with knowledge and understanding, Jeremiah 3.15, and to take up the stumbling stone out of their way, Isaiah 57.14. But he is also charged to cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression. Transgression, Isaiah 58, 1, and compare 1 Timothy 4, 2. While another important part of his commission is stated in Comfort ye my people, said your God, Isaiah 40, 1. What an honorable title, my people. What an assuring relationship, your God. What a pleasant task. Comfort ye, my people. A threefold reason may be suggested for the duplicating of the charge. First, because sometimes the souls of believers refuse to be comforted. Psalm 77, 2. And the consolation needs to be repeated. Second, to press this duty the more emphatically upon the preacher's heart that he need not be sparing in administering cheer. Third, to assure us how heartily desirous God himself is that his people should be of good cheer. Philippians 4, 4. God has a people the objects of his special favor, a company whom he has taken into such intimate relationship unto himself that he calls them my people. Often they are disconsolate because of their natural corruptions, the temptations of Satan, the cruel treatment of the world, the low state of Christ's cause upon earth, the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, is very tender of them and it is his revealed will that his servants should bind up the brokenhearted and pour the balm of Gilead into their wounds. What cause have we to exclaim, Who is a God like unto thee? Micah 7:18, who has provided for the comfort of those who were rebels against his government and transgressors of his law. The contents of this little volume have appeared from time to time in our monthly magazine during the last 30 years. They were previously sermons which we preached long ago in the USA and Australia. Here and there is an expression, especially where prophecy is touched upon, that we would not use today. But since the Lord was pleased to bless them in their original form to not a few of his distressed people, we have not revised them. May it please him to speak peace by them to afflicted souls today, and the glory shall be his alone. A.W. Pink, 1952 Chapter 1 No Condemnation There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1 There is therefore now no condemnation 
the 8th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, concludes the first section of that wonderful epistle. Its opening word, therefore, there is, is in italics, because supplied by the translators, may be viewed in a twofold way. First, it connects with all that has been said from chapter 3, verse 21. An inference is now deduced from the whole of the preceding discussion, an inference which was, in fact, the grand conclusion toward which the apostle had been aiming throughout the entire argument. Because Christ has been set forth a propitiation through faith in his blood, chapter 3, verse 25. Because he was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Chapter 4, verse 25. Because by the obedience of the one, the many believers of all ages are made righteous, constituted so legally. Chapter 5, verse 19. Because believers have died judicially to sin. Chapter 6, verse 2. Because they have died to the condemning power of the law. Chapter 7, verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation. But not only is the therefore to be viewed as a conclusion drawn from the whole of the previous discussion, it is also to be considered as having a close relation to what immediately precedes. In the second half of Romans 7, the apostle had described the painful and ceaseless conflict which is waged between the antagonistic natures in the one who has been born again, illustrating this by a reference to his own personal experiences as a Christian. Having portrayed with a master pen himself sitting for the picture the spiritual struggles of the child of God, the apostle now proceeds to direct attention to the divine consolation for a condition so distressing and humiliating. The transition from the despondent tone of the seventh chapter to the triumphant language of the eighth appears startling and abrupt, yet is quite logical and natural. If it is true that to the saints of God belongs the conflict of sin and death under whose effect they mourn, equally true is it that their deliverance from the curse and the corresponding condemnation is a victory in which they rejoice. A very striking contrast is thus pointed. In the second half of Romans 7, the apostle treats the power of sin, which operates in believers as long as they are in the world. In the opening verses of chapter 8, he speaks of the guilt of sin from which they are completely delivered the moment they are united to the Savior by faith. Hence, in chapter 7, verse 24, the apostle asks, who shall deliver me from the power of sin? But in 8.2, he says, hath made me free. In other words, hath delivered me from the guilt of sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation 
It is not here a question of our heart condemning us, as in 1 John 3.21, nor of us finding nothing within which is worthy of condemnation. Instead, it is the far more blessed fact that God condemns not the one who has trusted in Christ to the saving of his soul. We need to distinguish sharply between subjective and objective truth, between that which is judicial and that which is experimental. Otherwise, we shall fail to draw from such scriptures as the one now before us the comfort and peace they are designed to convey. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ is the believer's position before God, not his condition in the flesh. In Adam, I was condemned, Romans 5.12, but in Christ is to be forever freed from all condemnation. There is, therefore now, no condemnation. The qualifying now implies there was a time when Christians, before they believed, were under condemnation. This was before they died with Christ, died judicially, Galatians 2.20, to the penalty of God's righteous law. This now, then, distinguishes between two states or conditions. By nature, we were under the sentence of law, but now believers are under grace. Romans 6, 14. By nature, we were children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 2. But now we are accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 6. Under the first covenant, we were in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.22, but now we are in Christ, Romans 8.1. As believers in Christ, we have everlasting life, and because of this, we shall not come into condemnation. Condemnation is a word of tremendous import, and the better we understand it, the more shall we appreciate the wondrous grace that has delivered us from its power. In the halls of a human court, this is a term which falls with fearful knell upon the ear of the convicted criminal and fills the spectators with sadness and horror. But in the court of divine justice, it is vested with a meaning and content infinitely more solemn and awe-inspiring. To that court, every member of Adam's fallen race is cited, conceived in sin, shapen in iniquity. Each one enters this world under arrest, an indicted criminal, a rebel manacled. How then is it possible for such a one to escape the execution of the dread sentence? There was only one way, and that was by the removal from us of what which called forth the sentence, namely sin. Let guilt be removed, and there can be no condemnation. Has guilt been removed? Removed, we mean, from the sinner who believes? Let the scriptures answer. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103:12. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Isaiah 43:25. Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Isaiah 38:17. Thank you.
Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews 10:17. But how could guilt be removed? Only by it being transferred. Divine holiness could not ignore it, but divine grace could and did transfer it. The sins of believers were transferred to Christ. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53:6. For he hath made him to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5:21. There is therefore no condemnation. The no is emphatic. It signifies there is no condemnation whatsoever, no condemnation from the law or on account of inward corruption or because Satan can substantiate a charge against me. There is none from any source or for any cause at all. No condemnation means that none at all is possible, that none ever will be. There is no condemnation because there is no accusation. See chapter 8, verse 33. And there can be no accusation because there is no imputation of sin. See chapter 4, verse 8. There is, therefore, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. When treating of the conflict between the two natures in the believer, the apostle had, in the previous chapter, spoken of himself in his own person, in order to show that the highest attainments in grace do not exempt from the internal warfare which he there describes. But here in chapter 8, verse 1, the apostle changes the number. He does not say there is no condemnation to me, but to them which are in Christ Jesus. This was most gracious of the Holy Spirit. Had the apostle spoken here in the singular number, we would have reasoned that such a blessed exemption was well suited to this honored servant of God who enjoyed such wondrous privileges but could not apply to us. The Spirit of God, therefore, moved the Apostle to employ the plural number here to show that no condemnation is true of all in Christ Jesus. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus is to be perfectly identified with Him in the judicial reckoning and dealings of God. And it is also to be one with Him as vitally united by faith. Immunity from condemnation does not depend in any wise upon our walk, but solely on our being in Christ. The believer is in Christ as Noah was enclosed within the ark, with the heavens darkening above him and the waters heaving beneath him, yet not a drop of the flood penetrating his vessel, not a blast of the storm disturbing the serenity of his spirit. The believer is in Christ as Jacob was in the garment of the elder brother when Isaac kissed and blessed him. He is in Christ as the poor homicide was within the city of refuge when pursued by the avenger of blood, but who could not overtake and slay him. Dr. Winslow, 1857. 
and because he is in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for him. Hallelujah. Chapter 2 The Christian's Assurance And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28 How many of God's children have, through the centuries, drawn strength and comfort from this blessed verse in the midst of trials, perplexities, and persecutions? This has been a rock beneath their feet. Though to outward sight things seemed to work against their good, though to carnal reason things appeared to be working for their ill, nevertheless, faith knew it was for otherwise. And how great the loss to those who failed to rest upon this inspired declaration, what unnecessary fears and doubtings were the consequence. All things work together. The first thought occurring to us is this. What a glorious being our God be, who is able to make all things so work. What a frightful amount of evil there is in constant activity. What an almost infinite number of creatures there are in the world. What an incalculable quantity of opposing self-interests at work. What a vast army of rebels fighting against God. What hosts of superhuman creatures over opposing the Lord. And yet, high above all is God, in undisturbed calm, complete master of the situation. There from the throne of his exalted majesty, he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1:11. Stand in awe, then, before this one in whose sight all nations are as nothing, and they are counted as less than nothing and Vanity, Isaiah forty seventeen. Bow in adoration before this high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Isaiah fifty seven fifteen. Lift high your praise unto him who from the direct evil can educe the greatest good. All things work. In nature there is no such thing as a vacuum, neither is there a creature of God that fails to serve its designed purpose. Nothing is idle. Everything is energized by God so as to fulfill its intended mission. All things are laboring toward the grand end of their Creator's pleasure. All are moved at His imperative bidding. All things work together. They not only operate, they cooperate. They all act in perfect concert, though none but the anointed ear can catch the strains of their harmony. All things work together, not simply, but conjointly, as adjunct causes and mutual helps. That is why afflictions seldom come solitary and alone. 
cloud rises upon cloud, storm upon storm. As with Job, one messenger of woe was quickly succeeded by another, burdened with tidings of yet heavier sorrow. Nevertheless, even here faith may trace both the wisdom and love of God. It is the compounding of the ingredients in the recipe that constitutes its beneficent value. So with God. His dispensations not only work, but they work together. So recognized the sweet singer of Israel. He drew me out of many waters. Psalm 18:16. All things work together for good, too, etc. These words teach believers that no matter what may be the number, nor how overwhelming the character of adverse circumstances, they are all contributing to conduct them into the possession of the inheritance provided for them in heaven. How wonderful is the providence of God in overruling things most disorderly and in turning to our good things which in themselves are most pernicious. We marvel at his mighty power which holds the heavenly bodies in their orbits. We wonder at the continually recurring seasons and the renewal of the earth. But this is not nearly so marvelous as his bringing good out of evil in all the complicated occurrences of human life and making even the power and malice of Satan with the naturally destructive tendencies of his works to minister good for his children. All things work together for good. This must be so for three reasons. First, because all things are under the absolute control of the governor of the universe. Second, because God desires our good and nothing but our good. Third, because even Satan himself cannot touch a hair of our heads without God's permission and then only for our further good. Not all things are good in themselves, nor in their tendencies, but God makes all things work for our good. Nothing enters our life by blind chance, nor are they any accidents. Everything is being moved by God with this end in view, our good. Everything being subservient to God's eternal purpose works blessing to those marked out for conformity to the image of the firstborn. All suffering, sorrow, loss are used by our Father to minister to the benefit of the elect. To them that love God, this is the grand distinguishing feature of every true Christian. The reverse marks all the unregenerate, but the saints are those who love God. Their creeds may differ in minor details. Their ecclesiastical relations may vary in outward form. Their gifts and graces may be very unequal, yet in this particular there is an essential unity. They all believe in Christ. 
They all love God. They love him for the gift of the Savior. They love him as a father in whom they may confide. They love him for his personal excellencies, his holiness, wisdom, faithfulness. They love him for his conduct, for what he withholds, and for what he grants, for what he rebukes, and for what he approves. They love him even for the rod that disciplines, knowing that he doth all things well. There is nothing in God, and there is nothing from God, for which the saints do not love him. And of this, they are all assured, we love him because he first loved us. To them that love God, but alas, how little I love God. I so frequently mourn my lack of love and chide myself for the coldness of my heart. Yes, there is so much love of self and love of the world that sometimes I seriously question if I have any real love for God at all. But is not my very desire to love God a good symptom? Is not my very grief that I love Him so little a sure evidence that I do not hate him. The presence of a hard and ungrateful heart has been mourned over by the saints of all ages. Love to God is a heavenly aspiration that is ever kept in check by the drag and restraint of an earthly nature, and from which we shall not be unbound till the soul has made its escape from the vile body and cleared its unfettered way to the realm of light and liberty. Dr. Chalmers, who are called. The word called is never in the New Testament epistles applied to those who are the recipients of a mere external invitation of the gospel. The term always signifies an inward and effectual call. It was a call over which we had no control, either in originating or frustrating it. So in Romans 1, 6, and 7, and many other passages, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Has this call reached you, my reader? Ministers have called you. The gospel has called you. Conscience has called you. But has the Holy Spirit called you with an inward and irresistible call? Have you been spiritually called from darkness to light, from death to life, from the world to Christ, from self to God? It is a matter of the greatest moment that you should know whether you have been truly called of God, as then the thrilling, life-giving music of that call sounded and reverberated through all the chambers of your soul. But how may I be sure that I have received such a call? There is one thing right here in our text which should enable you to ascertain. They who have been efficaciously called love God. Instead of hating Him, they now esteem Him. Instead of fleeing from Him in terror, they now 
seek him, instead of caring not whether their conduct honored him. Their deepest desire now is to please and glorify him. According to his purpose. The call is not according to the merits of men, but according to the divine purpose, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 The design of the Holy Spirit in bringing in this last clause is to show that the reason some men love God God and others do not is to be attributed solely to the mere sovereignty of God. It is not for anything in themselves, but due alone to his distinguishing grace. There is also a practical value in this last clause. The doctrines of grace are intended for a further purpose than that of making up a creed. One main design of them is to move the affections, and more especially to reawaken that affection to which the heart, oppressed with fears or weighed down with cares, is wholly insufficient, even the love of God. That this love may flow perennially from our hearts, there must be a constant recurring to that which inspired it and which is calculated to increase it. Just as to rekindle your admiration of a beautiful scene or picture, you would return again to gaze upon it. It is in this principle that so much stress is laid in Scripture on keeping the truths which we believe in memory, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. 1 Corinthians 15.2 I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, said the Apostle, 2 Peter 3.1 Do this in remembrance of me, said the Savior. It is then, by going back in memory to that hour when, despite our wretchedness and utter unworthiness, God called us, that our affection will be kept fresh. It is by recalling the wondrous grace that then reached out to a hell-deserving sinner and snatched you as a brand from the burning, that your heart will be drawn out in adoring gratitude, and it is by discovering this was due alone to the sovereign and eternal purpose of God that you were called when so many others are passed by, that your love for him will be deepened. Returning to the opening words of our text, we find the Apostle, as voicing the normal experience of the saints, declares, We know that all things work together for good. It is something more than a speculative belief. That all things work together for good is even more than a fervent desire. It is not that we merely hope that all things will so work, but that we are fully assured all things do so work. The knowledge here spoken of is 
spiritual, not intellectual. It is a knowledge rooted in our hearts which produces confidence in the truth of it. It is the knowledge of faith which receives everything from the benevolent hand of infinite wisdom. It is true that we do not derive much comfort from this knowledge when out of fellowship with God, nor will it sustain us when faith is not in operation. But when we are in communion with the Lord, when in our weakness we do lean hard upon Him, then is this blessed assurance ours. Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on Thee, because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26, 3. A striking exemplification of our text is supplied by the history of Jacob, one whom in several respects each of us closely resembles. Heavy and dark was the cloud which settled upon him, severe was the test, and fearful the trembling of his faith. His feet were almost gone. Hear his mournful plaint. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children? Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Genesis 42:36. And yet those circumstances which to the dim eye of his faith wore a hue so somber were at that very moment developing and perfecting the events which were to shed around the evening of his life the halo of a glorious and cloudless sunset. All things were working together for his good. And so, troubled soul, the much tribulation will soon be over, and as you enter the kingdom of God, you shall then see no longer through a glass darkly, but in the unshadowed sunlight of the divine presence, that all things did work together for your personal and eternal good. Chapter 3. Sufferings Compensated for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8:18. 8, ah, says someone, that must have been written by a man who was a stranger to suffering, or by one acquainted with nothing more than trying than the milder irritations of life. Not so. These words were penned under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and by one who drank deeply of sorrow's cup, yea, by one who suffered afflictions in their acutest forms. Hear his own testimony. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils Perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Second Corinthians eleven twenty four through twenty seven. 
For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This then was the settled conviction, not of one of fortune's favorites, not of one who found life's journey a carpeted pathway bordered with roses, but instead of one who was hated by his kinsmen, who was oft times beaten black and blue, who knew what it was to be deprived not only of the comforts, but the bare necessities of life. How then shall we account for his cheery optimism? What was the secret of his elevation over his troubles and trials? The first thing with which the sorely tried apostle comforted himself was that the sufferings of the Christian are but a brief duration. They are limited to this present time. This is in sharp and solemn contrast from the sufferings of the Christ rejector. His sufferings will be eternal, forever tormented in the lake of fire. But far different is it for the believer. His sufferings are restricted to this life on earth, which is compared to a flower that cometh forth and is cut down, to a shadow that fleeth and continueth not. A few short years at most and we shall pass from this veil of tears into that blissful country where groans and sighs are never heard. Second, the apostle looked forward with the eye of faith to the glory. To Paul, the glory was something more than a beautiful dream. It was a practical reality, exerting a powerful influence upon him, consoling him in the warmest and most trying hours of adversity. This is one of the real tests of faith. The Christian has a solid support in the time of affliction when the unbeliever has not. The child of God knows that in his father's presence there is fullness of joy and that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And faith lays hold of them, appropriates them, and lives in the comforting cheer of them even now. Just as Israel in the wilderness were encouraged by a sight of what awaited them in the promised land, Numbers 13, 23, and 26, so the one who today walks by faith and not by sight contemplates that which eye hath not seen nor ear heard, but which God by his Holy Spirit hath revealed unto us 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. Third, the apostle rejoiced in the glory which should be revealed in us. All that this means we are not yet capable of understanding, but more than a hint has been vouchsafed us, there will be A. The glory of a perfect body. In that day this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal immortality. That which was sown in dishonor shall be raised in glory, and that which was sown in weakness shall be raised in power. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. 1 Corinthians 15.49 the content of these expressions is summarized and amplified in Philippians 3:20 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven, 
from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. B. There will be the glory of a transformed mind. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. 1 Corinthians 13.12 Oh, what an orb of intellectual light will be each glorified mind. What range of light will it encompass? What capability of understanding will it enjoy? Then will all mysteries be unraveled, all problems solved, all discrepancies reconciled. Then shall each truth of God's revelation, each event of His providence, each decision of His government, stand yet more transparently clear and resplendent than the sun itself. Do you, in your present quest for spiritual knowledge, mourn the darkness of your mind, the weakness of your memory, the limitations of your intellectual faculties, then rejoice in hope of the glory that is to be revealed in you when all your intellectual powers shall be renewed, developed, perfected, so that you shall know even as you are known. See, best of all, there will be the glory of perfect holiness. God's work of grace in us will then be completed. He has promised to perfect that which concerneth us. Psalm 138.8 Then will be the consummation of purity. We have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans 8.29 And when we shall see Him, we shall be like Him. 1 John 3.2 Then our minds will be no more defiled by evil imaginations. Our consciences no more sullied by a sense of guilt. Our affections no more ensnared by unworthy objects. What a marvelous prospect is this. A glory to be revealed in me who now can scarcely reflect a solitary ray of light. In me, so wayward, so unworthy, so sinful, living so little in communion with him who is the father of lights. Can it be that in me this glory shall be revealed? So affirms the infallible word of God. If I am a child of light, through being in him who is the effulgence of the Father's glory, even though now dwelling amid the world's dark shades, one day I shall outshine the brightness of the firmament. And when the Lord Jesus returns to this earth, he shall be admired in all them that believe. Second Thessalonians 1.10 Finally, the Apostle here weighed the sufferings of this present time 
over against the glory which shall be revealed in us. And as he did so, he declared that the one is not worthy to be compared with the other. The one is transient, the other eternal. As then there is no proportion between the finite and the infinite, so there is no comparison between the sufferings of earth and the glory of heaven. One second of glory will outweigh a lifetime of suffering. What were the years of toil, of sickness, of battling with poverty, of sorrow in any or every form, when compared with the glory of Emmanuel's land? One draft of the river of pleasure at God's right hand, one breath of paradise, one hour amid the blood washed around the throne, shall more than compensate for all the tears and groans of earth. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. May the Holy Spirit enable both writer and reader to lay hold of this with appropriating faith and live in the present possession and enjoyment of it to the praise of the glory of divine grace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.